find out who that was that said finally. So we, we've made it to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you have your Bibles over under scenarios, and if you think under, you're going to raise your hand, and then I'm going to ask for the over. If you think over, raise your hand, okay? Now, if you think that the law, chapter 7, Romans 7, is all about the law, it appears 23 times in this chapter. Right, there's, there's no mistaking it. You can't miss it. Uh, Paul's talking about how we have been released from the law in Christ Jesus. So the law, the Mosaic law. Now, if you think that there are under 500 commands in the Mosaic law, raise your hand. Under 500 commands in the Mosaic law. Don't be shy. Come on, be bold. Over 500, raise your hand. Okay, almost everybody. Now, if you think that there are over 600, raise your hand. If you think there are over 700, raise your hand. Okay, we got a few. Now, I appreciate your participation. And what's commonly agreed upon, right, that doesn't necessarily make it exact or anything else, but the the most agreed upon count is 613 laws in the law of Moses. 613. We see that as early as the third century in the Talmud. One of the rabbis counted them all out. Then in the 12th century, we get a little bit more evidence. Another guy counted them out. Anyway, 613 laws, 613 of them. And when you read the Old Testament, you really cannot overlook, like you, you can't miss this fact that the people of God, they cherished, they embraced, they esteemed, they uh, gloried in the law. Amen. They loved it. They, were, they, they revered it. They, they appreciated it. The dignity, character, and uh, centrality of the law is unmistakable in the Old Testament. We see it in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 15, Psalm 19, 7 through 10, and then the longest chapter in the entire Bible, if you know it, say it. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And we see it elsewhere as well. But all of this to say, what we've covered so far in Paul's letter to the Christians living in Rome, the negative effects of the law has been a reoccurring motif, a reoccurring theme to this point in his letter. Right, so as much as the Old Testament people of God, as much as the New Testament people of God esteemed the law. Paul has been talking about how negatively it has impacted God's people. Are we there? You, do we remember this? Okay, because in Romans 2, we studied this months ago now at this point, but we saw that, that Paul argued that possession of the law didn't do Israel any good because Israel, if they failed to obey it, right? It's not possession of the law that counts, um, but obedience to the law that counts. Y'all remember that? Okay, if you remember, let me know. And then what we understand is that although God's law is holy, righteous, it is just, it is good, it is all the positive things, mankind is utterly sinful. We are wretched sinners. So even this good, holy, righteous, and just thing that God has given us, we can't obey it. We actually rebel against it, and we are utterly incapable of keeping it. Romans 3.20, a few months ago, we covered, Paul said, for by, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, 
comes knowledge of sin. Right? So the law is good, mankind is not, and we can't be justified by keeping it because it's impossible. No human being will be justified in his sight. Then in Romans 4.15, we see that uh, Paul said, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then one more that we covered a few weeks ago, Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. So far from creating righteousness, the law exposed mankind's extensive sinfulness. Right? Far from providing righteousness, it exposed it. So Paul has been talking about this, this reoccurring motif of the negative impacts of the law. Now, here in Romans 7, where we're at, it parallels what we've covered in Romans 6. In Romans 6, we've covered that believers in Christ have been redeemed or delivered from or set free from uh, sin, the power of sin, the ruling, governing force in the sinner's life. We've been released from that. We've been freed from that. We are no longer slaves to sin. Now here in Romans 7, he says that we've been released from the law. So we have these two tyrannical uh, powers competing in our, in our lives as unbelievers, the law and sin. We've been released. We've been freed or set free from both of those. So let's look at these parallels real quick. In Romans 6, Paul said that believers have died to sin. That was Romans 6, 2. And have been set free from sin, Romans 6, 7. Now here in Romans 7, chapter 7 that is, he says that believers have died to the law and are released from the law. Died to the law and are released from the, the law. And then in Romans 6, Paul explained that freedom from sin leads to serving God and producing fruit pleasing to him. Here in Romans 7, he explains that freedom from the law, it leads to serving God in the new way of the spirit and producing fruit for God. Are you starting to see these parallels? No, okay, we're not awake this morning or not selling it. Either way, after stating in Romans 6.14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. He explained what it means to no longer, uh, for sin to have, no longer have dominion over you, for sin to no longer be the ruling governing force in your life because Jesus has freed you from that. What it means to not be a slave to sin. He explained that Romans six fifteen through 23 that we just got out of last week. Now here, he's explaining that you are not under the law, but under grace. This statement right here, it would have been shocking. It would have floored Jewish people who respected, who revered, who esteemed the law without Paul's explanation. So he explains this here in chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn there. Romans 7, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 6. When you have it, say, I'm, at, I'm there. There we go. Y'all thought I was going to say amen. I almost did it too. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that when we sing your praise, we are reminded of how good you are to wretched sinners like us who not only would not and could not fulfill your law, but rightly deserved 
its condemning penalty. Father, we pray that you would impress the reality of your grace, your mercy, your love, and your goodness, your holiness on our hearts this morning. We pray that you would speak to us through your word and transform us by your spirit. And all God's people said, amen. So in verse one, he says, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is set free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may, may bear fruit for God. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. So nothing too out of the blue or unfamiliar to us in, at this point in Paul's letter. We saw it at the beginning of Romans 6. He says, what then, or what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. Um, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Here it is, verse 3. Do you not know? An axiom. Here in, verse, or in chapter 6, and then here in chapter 7, he's starting the same way. Or do you not know? This, this axiom. It's not a deep theological statement. It is a self-evident general truth that doesn't need to be proven. Right? It, it's apparent. Or do you not know? You should know this, is what he's saying. So this is how he begins here in chapter 7. Something that is it's general, it's self-evident, it should be apparent to anybody who reads this letter or who understands um, what it means to be in Christ. So he calls them brothers too. He calls them brothers. And we know that he's writing to Christians in Rome. This isn't to just um, some people you know living in Rome some friends that he knew from way back when right he's writing to believers and he calls them brothers but even still we know that some of the believers in Rome were very well Jewish right they could have been Jewish they could have been Gentile and we understand that when he calls them brothers he's talking to them as brothers in Christ but also as somebody who was a Jewish Christian amen so he's dealing with this difficult subject, right? What it means to be out from under the law, um, having died to the law, the thing that the Jews would have held highly, any God-fearing Gentiles would have held highly. And he's doing it with grace and patience and respect and a, a tender approach to this difficult subject. So the basics... We see him say, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now he's appealing again to the audience's common knowledge. And regardless of whatever law his readers were familiar with, they would have understood that the law's authority only applies to the living. It doesn't apply to the dead. Right When a drunk driver gets into a car accident and dies, you don't see the cop writing a, a ticket to the corpse doesn't apply. He's dead. 
right? We, we know this. It's, it's apparent. It's obvious. So the law's jurisdiction then is only over the living. It cannot reach the dead, obviously. So he uses an analogy here, an analogy, and he says, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. And Paul's point is simply this. A married person is bound by law to his or her spouse only for as long as they both live. If the spouse dies, you are no longer bound by law to him or her. Right? Till death do, us, till death do us part. Were you about to beat me to the punch, Kyle? Oh, till death do us part. And unfortunately, there's an increasing amount of couples uh, who are getting married, men and women, uh, who are taking those out of their, their vows and everything else because they don't want to be held to that commitment. But it was mutually and widely, almost universally understood that you are bound in marriage until death. When that spouse dies, it's over. Why'd you laugh at that? (laughs) So in verse three, we see the meaning. He says, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is set free from that law. If she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Paul's point is that simply using uh, or simply according to biblical law, a person must not be married to two people simultaneously. That would make them an adulteress. Amen. Right? It's, it's not a secret. We get it. All right? Um, and here's what's... I don't think it's necessarily tricky, and I don't think that we're going there, but I want to get ahead of it and just cut it off before it even starts. <clears throat> the question is, is Paul ta- is he teaching about divorce and remarriage in Romans 7, 2 through 3? And the short answer is no. He's not teaching about marriage and divorce and remarriage. That, that's not his point here. This is a very simple analogy that we're not to apply, excuse me, to try to apply everything that Paul is saying and carry it over into every other doctrine or every other belief that we have about everything else, right? So there are some who make a blanket claim that what Paul is talking about is that the only reason Um, that the only reason that a marriage can end is if the spouse dies. Now, I know some of you are like, dang, I was about to. He left his shoes there again. That's it. He's done. But that's not what Paul is trying to reinforce here. It's not what he's trying to reiterate. Uh, Hermeneutics is, is the science and the art of interpreting Scripture. Right? The science and the art of interpreting Scripture. And typically... What you do to uh, interpret the word faithfully is you look at definitive passages regarding a topic, and then you go to uncertain passages. So this would be an uncertain passage to build our doctrine of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So we wouldn't go to texts like Matthew 5, 31 and 32, or Matthew 19, uh, 3 through 9, and say, well, Romans 7 says that Death is the only time that you can get divorced, so Jesus, you're wrong. This, when we have an unfaithful hermeneutic, my point is this, that's when we say that there are contradictions in the Bible. When we have an unfaithful hermeneutic, our, our theology, it looks like an a unscrambled puzzle or a scrambled puzzle. 
not on Scrum, because then it'd be solved. But it, like the, the pieces don't fit together, it doesn't make sense, you can't connect it, and you don't see a, a good and clear picture because we're not interpreting the scriptures rightly. The point is, Paul is not teaching us about marriage and divorce here. And, and the reason that we know that he's not saying that the only time a marriage ends is when a spouse dies is because of what he teaches elsewhere, just simply. 1 Corinthians 7.39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to, ma uh, to be married to whom she wishes, wishes only in the Lord. 1 Timothy 5.14, he said this, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. So death permanently ends the law that binds two people in marriage. We see what Jesus teaches about marriage. We see the exclusions that God has made. Now, don't hear me wrong. Don't hear me wrong. These exclusions do not include and are not limited to Drug abuse, uh, domestic abuse, uh, emotional abuse, poor money management, uh, any of the things that people, competing personalities, we just grew apart, right? Those are not biblical reasons for divorce. What, what God has joined together, let not man separate. We, we live in a culture that is so quick to divorce, it's not even funny. We throw around the D word and it, it's a, about like a, a curse word, but it's just so common and widespread that it doesn't even hit our thick skin and our hearts and our minds. It is a common picture for so many people. There are exceptions, there are exclusions that God has made, but it is never his will. Amen? So again, Paul's analogy is pretty cut and dry. Death ends a marriage. And then we see the application, right? The, this analogy, it's limited in its scope and it's in its extent, right? We can't just apply it to anything that we want. We can't just blanket statement this whole thing. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Sorry, that was real quick. But likewise, what that tells us, that word right there, likewise, it tells us that what we just saw in that analogy, he's now applying to the believer's life. So we need to get something. We need to see how we fit into this analogy. And so the law applies only to those who live under it. The law applies only to those who live under it. And here's a good reminder of the past. He says, you also have died to the law. Remember that big section that we were talking about in Romans 6, the entire chapter, how many times we said that, you, that we've died, you've died in Christ. When Christ died on the cross, the moment that you believed you were supernaturally united with him in his death, you died too, there, supernaturally. Can't explain that. God did it. All right? And so we've died to the law. We're no longer under its legal binding authority or its condemning penalty. Now, that should be good news because there are 613 of those that we would be responsible for obeying. Amen? Okay. And, and I don't know about you, but I can't even get like three under my belt. Like I don't even wake up at the same time every morning. I woke up at 248 this morning. 
Not planned. Wasn't excited about it. Just happened. And the Greek, right, this, this phrase, you also have died to the law. The Greek, it makes this, this meaning unmistakable. The, the word translated have died. It could be translated put to death. And, and it speaks of a violent death. It was a violent, gruesome, and brutal death that the Lord died, that we are united into. It's not the Birkenstock, long hair, blue eyes, flowing in the wind, Jesus. It's, it's the, the skin beaten off his back, blood in his face, like a, a crown of thorns pushed into the sides of his head. It was violent. It was brutal. It was ugly. So the law, it it condemns, it commands, it demands, it rebukes, and it restrains, but it cannot conquer sin. It can enact the penalty, but it makes no provision for the payment. Last week we saw in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But for the believer, Christ has paid the penalty for sin. He has removed us from death's dominion and put us under his reign of grace. And through our union with him, We have already died, and so we are freed to the law's binding authority and condemning penalty. He has taken taken us from under the law to under his reign of grace. You see, the, the law, it says that you are guilty and you rightly and justly deserve the just punishment for your sin. That's God's eternal wrath, in case we were uncertain. Jesus took that, and he took us out from under that in his death on the cross. Now, we didn't do this ourselves. This is important to remember. We didn't do this ourselves. God did this. He not only planned salvation and he carried it out. So when the Lord saved you, you died to the law through Christ's death and the law no longer, no longer has any binding authority over you. Paul will go on and say in Romans 8, 1, we'll get there sometime next year. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Now, how did this happen? It's clear through the body of Christ. So by dying on the cross, the Son of God paid God the Father, uh, paid his penalty for sin in full and freed every believer from the law's demands. Here's a few verses for you. Rapid fire, lightning round. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake... He, that's God the Father, made him, that's God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus redeemed believers from the law by his death on the cross. Galatians 2, 19 and 24, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. Remember that that death, that supernatural death. Paul wasn't actually crucified, but in a supernatural way, he was. He died with Christ on the cross the day that the Lord saved him on the Damascus road. Now he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, this is, this is such a beautiful reality that we do not deserve and we could never earn. I don't know if 
if we know that or if we realize that or if we're, we're just struggling this morning because the coffee was, wasn't strong enough, Ronnie. I'm just kidding. It was strong. But this is something when you, when you think about it, when you consider that we deserved eternal wrath. But God, who is rich in love and great in mercy, sent his son to pay the penalty that we deserved. And here's the picture, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. This is a beautiful picture of the believer's relationship with Christ and, and the church as his bride. We see this in Ephesians 5, 24 and 27 and in 2 Corinthians. But then he says, uh, who was raised from the dead, and it reminds us of Christ's present union with all believers, our union with Christ. We're not identified with, with just a dead Savior. Our Savior lives, right? And this gives us hope for tomorrow and for eternity because he is risen. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father until he returns, right? So I don't need to worry every day if, if his uh, sacrifice was sufficient enough and, or if I'm just too bad and, and, and like I can lose it. Like, no, he won it. He paid it in full. It's done. You are out of the law's authority. There's no condemnation for you. It's done. It is finished. And he doesn't need to die again and again because it was sufficient. So the underlying point in the book of Romans is this. Salvation brings about a total transformation. Romans 5 and chapter 8, we see the believer's security in Christ. Romans 6, we see the believer's sanctification, our growth in holiness, right? growth in Christ's likeness. And then in Romans 7, the believer's freedom from the law. So believers are freed from striving. We're freed. I don't know about you, but... But I hear this so often, and I think I fall into the trap, and I, I think if we're honest this morning, we might as well, uh, we might admit it also, that you're, you're doing this like cosmic scale, you know, like, oh, I went to church today, so I put some in this side, God's happy with me, and then, you know, this side's good, but then, you know, I did that thing that I shouldn't have done, that he's clearly commanded again, so it's like, boop. And then, you know, you're just playing this scale where you're putting some in here and putting some in there. But that's, that's the thing. Like being out from under the law means that, that we no longer have to strive to gain God's favor. We receive God's favor through faith in Christ Jesus who fulfilled the law. That's why we can be called sons and daughters of God, children of God adopted into the family of faith. That's why the church is his bride, not the building, but the people. And Christ's resurrection is the key to that reality. His resurrection proved it was the vindication of, of who he said uh, he was. He was who he said he was. He did what he said that he, was, he came to do. And the proof is that he rose from the dead. And here's the purpose. In order that we may, may bear fruit for God. In order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, this isn't a command. This is a statement, right? There's no such thing as a, as a fruitless Christian, 
We've been saying this week after week after week, but there is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Every believer exists to glorify God. Every single believer. And one way we do that is by bearing fruit. So what kind of fruit does the Apostle Paul have in mind? Well, certainly this is attitude fruit. Attitude fruit. Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 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 peace. Peach is a fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then there's action fruit. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then in Philippians 1.11, the Apostle Paul, he prayed that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So salvation, it is productive. Salvation is productive. It produces a transformed life that bears fruit for God. No such thing as a fruitless Christian. Here's the problem. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And here's the mournful quartet. You guys know what a quartet is? We don't have them around as often. At least I don't see them around as often. Before people singing different parts, different tones. If you need a lesson, Amy Sutherland, she'll be happy to teach you. But we see uh, this in this mournful quartet in verse 5, it, it's describing mankind's unregenerate state. Our state before the Lord uh, gave us this new birth, before the Lord saved us, before the Holy Spirit uh, brought us to new life. We see the four, flesh, sin, law, and death. Flesh, sin, law, and death. And all of these, they operate in harmony, in a beautiful harmony that is just so painfully uh, devastating to our, our body and our soul. And that, gr- that word in the Greek for work, it's energeo. Energeo. And it, and it conveys a sense of flesh energizing our passions towards sin. Energeo. It's the energy. It, it's all of these things. They, they work. They're the energy that is working, that is driving our flesh towards those sinful passions that the Lord redeemed us from. So the first, just go one by one, the flesh singing soprano. It describes mankind's sinfulness as reaching to the very core of our being. Right? That term flesh, it's used two ways in the Bible. One is in a physical usage, and when it's used in this sense, it doesn't have any negative connotations with it. Right? When we're talking about the physical flesh, it, there's no negative connotations with it. John 1.14, and the word became flesh... And dwelt among us, his incarnation. He was in the flesh and dwelt among us. No negative connotations there. First John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Again, no negative connotations there. Second John, verse 7. There's only one chapter. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Physical usage of the word flesh. Now, what we've been talking about repeatedly is its ethical and its moral usage. Ethical and moral usage. Where, uh, when it's used in this sense, it always has an evil connotation. Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Negative connotation there. Ephesians 2.3. Among whom... 
We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of, of wrath like the rest of mankind. So when, when it's used in the ethical, moral, ethical or moral sense, what we have been saying for a few weeks, and we haven't gotten to Romans 8, so I haven't tried to punch into it too hard, but we're talking about our unredeemed bodies. Our unredeemed bodies. We have received a new nature, and we still are wrapped in sinful, unredeemed flesh. But when the Lord returns and we receive our redeemed bodies, our glorified bodies, we will not be, uh, we will not struggle with sin, right? Because we will see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. So for the believer, all of this is, is in the past. We no longer live according to the flesh and we still wait for our, our glorified, redeemed bodies. Amen? So the question then is, why do we still sin? Why do you still sin? Why do I still sin? Well, it's because we're not in the flesh, but the flesh is in us. It's not because you're in the flesh, but because the flesh is in you. Although we are no longer slaves to sin, we still possess that unredeemed body, which makes us susceptible to sin. But we don't have to give in to sin. Amen. Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So there's no more of this victim game where it's like, I just couldn't help it. I was just, I just, you know, it just hopped all over me. Nope. Gone. So we may do fleshly things. We may still fall into and struggle with sin, but that's because the flesh is in you but you are not its slave. Do not forget that we are new creations with a new incorruptible nature that is patterned after the very nature of God himself. We covered that last week. So until we receive our redemption or our redeemed bodies, our glorified bodies, we will and we must and we should and we have to battle with the flesh, which attempts to dominate. So that's soprano in Singing in alto is sin, our sinful passions. It's, it's our unregenerate flesh that produces sinful passions and impulses. And then in singing in tenor is the law. It's aroused by the law. So how could God's perfect law arouse or prompt evil? Well, because it both reveals sin and arouses sin. Reveals because it's good, it exposes evil. It's good, it shows us how bad we are. We cover that in Romans 5.20. We see that without the giving of the law, you and I, mankind, sinful fallen mankind, would have no standard by which to judge or know when we have sinned against a holy, righteous, and just God. But it also arouses sin because there's nothing more stimulating, there's nothing more exciting or arousing to sinful fallen man than to do the very thing that you told them not to do. You're like, not me. And I get it. You guys are holy. I saw the halos when you came in, you floated on a cloud. Amen. Glory to God. But guess what? You tell me not to do something. Now I want to do it. And I have to fight against not doing it. Then in base is death. 
So the flesh that generates sinful impulses, which the law aggravates, uh, the ultimate result, the ultimate end of these things is a downward spiral into death of the body and the soul. But we have Paul's affirmation in verse 6. He says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit, in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. We were freed. We were freed. Amen. We were liberated. We were uh, redeemed from our enslavement to sin. We were released from the law. So, but now we just talked about the mournful quartet where the, the situation, the scenario, the scene, it seemed dismal. It seemed hopeless. But now beautiful butts in scripture. That's one of them. But now we are released from the law. So those who believe in Jesus Christ have been released from serving the flesh and being subject to the law. The law, again, it says that you are guilty and it, uh, the penalty is death. Another affirmation, we died, having died to that which held us captive. We were once held captive to the flesh and by our sinful impulses, which were stimulated by the law and the end of which were death, but we've died to it. We are out of that loop. We are out of its legal binding authority and condemning penalty. So there's no, it no longer reigns supreme. Sin and the law are no longer the ruling governing force in the believer's life not just in power, but in jurisdiction. You're dead to it. It's not going to give you a ticket. It can't. It has no authority over you. But we have a duty so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we were saved not only to bear fruit, but also to serve. Now, again, the Greek construction of the sentence, it's explicit, it's clear, it's direct. It isn't saying that believers should serve. It's saying that they will serve. Hear the difference. The way that God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, constructed this in the Greek, he's not saying, hey, believers, you should serve. It's saying that you will. So have believers been set free to do whatever they want? Paul's answer is no. We've been delivered from the law to serve God. The old way of service, it was cold, it was dry, and it was mechanical. Right, just checking the box, going through the motions. It, it, there was no um, heartfelt sincerity in it. And that is the old way, right? But the new way of the spirit is much different. It speaks of a new quality of life. Our service to the Lord is, is of a wholly new kind. It's internal and it's heartfelt. Our heart isn't unresponsive. We're not just going through dry religious um, ritual. We are living. We are breathing. We are responsive to God. Amen. So we no longer are slaves to a, amen, somebody. So we're no longer slaves to fulfill a set of laws in an attempt to gain favor with God. I need you to hear that. We are no longer slaves to an external set of laws in an attempt to gain favor with God. If you are in Christ, you are out from under the law's authority that you could never fulfill. Favor with God comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And now we serve out of love because he's granted us salvation by his grace alone. So true salvation, it means an entirely new nature within the believer. And that new nature, it has a propensity in, in the, the drive, the inclination to be committed to deeply heartfelt service to God, which is energized by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. We love the first half. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We didn't miss that second part, did we? I will put my spirit within you and it will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Saved, you do whatever you want. No. The law cannot save because it has absolutely no capacity uh, to do so. It, it was never intended to save. We saw that with Abraham in Romans 4. He was justified by faith. His faith looked like obedience. Did Abraham get everything right? Was he the perfect role model? No. But God justified him on the basis of his faith, not on the basis of his performance. So now, for the first time, the moment the Lord saved you, we have the ability, we have the capacity to obey the law. We can cry out with the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, 97, Oh, how I love your law. So while the law does not determine our right standing with God, our new nature, it loves and seeks to obey it. And as we'll see in Romans 8 and Romans 12, Paul stresses that the Christian's obedience, it's a reflection of, of the Spirit's work in transforming our minds and hearts. This is why obedience is so important. Because it showcases, it, it tells you and it tells others the Spirit's working in you. But we need commandments to guide us into the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We need, we need to know what is right and what is wrong. We need to know what God expects of his people, what it means to live consistently, what it means to grow in Christ likeness, what it means to respond in those difficult situations and those really happy and joyful situations. And what we see in the New Testament are commandments. I don't know if you know this, I'm sure you do, but nine out of the 10 commandments uh, in the original 10 uh, are reiterated in the New Testament. The only one that's not, it's not tithing, I know you thought it was, it's the Sabbath command. The Sabbath command, the only one that's not reiterated in the New Testament. And what these fall into or under is the law of Christ. What we see in the New Testament are tons of commands. Do not do this, do this. We see it in Jesus' example as well. What his apostles uh, had written after and commanded afterwards, all fall under the law of Christ. That's the law that we obey. Now what this means in practice then, is that we need to look for these commands. We need to study these commands that express God's moral law for us as new covenant Christians. Now, when we see these, when we study these, they need to be rightly interpreted and they need to be obeyed because of it. 
Again, this doesn't mean that we should no longer read the Old Testament because it is God's word. And hey, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure you do, but the, the Old Testament informs the new. The Old Testament informs the New Testament, right? All scripture is God's word and it's given so that believers may be complete, equipped for every good work. So although we do not stand directly under the Old Testament law, the, the law reminds us how great our Savior is. He fulfilled the law on our behalf through his perfect life. He says this in Matthew five seventeen, and we're closing. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then taking upon himself the just penalty of our sin, on the cross, Jesus said this in John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. 29, a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine in, or on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, okay, one more time. When Jesus had received the, the sour wine, he said, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So when Jesus uttered those words, it is finished, tetelestai in the Greek. It's an accounting term that means paid in full. The sin debt that we owed God the Father has been paid in full, eliminated, washed away in that one single act. Every person who ever believes in Christ, it's gone, paid in full, done, and eliminated. And I don't know if you know this, but your sin deserves death. And God would be just and right and good and holy to give it to you and me. But he provided his son that you might be saved, that you would escape that punishment that you rightly deserve, that I rightly deserve. And this is a God worth praising. This is a Savior worth living for with every single step in our lives. There is nothing in this world that is more satisfying than a relationship, a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a game. There's not an amount of money. There's not a job. There's not a girl or a guy or, you know, depending on which sex you are, gender, sorry, excuse me, whatever. I don't, the political correct thing isn't my alley. Right relationships. He wants a relationship with you, and he's made every way possible for that to happen. So the invitation this morning is to stop striving to earn God's favor and trust in Christ's finished work. Stop striving for what the Lord already paid for. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sin and the promise of eternal life. Get out from under the law and live in this freedom. Serve the living God. Bear fruit for the living God. Let's pray.